Good morning. There for a minute, I forgot I was the one speaking today. I got so used to listening last week, I forgot I was uh, up next for a minute. We're glad you're all here uh, tonight, this morning rather. Uh, it's been a long day already. Uh, we had a good meeting last week. I thought Don, Brother Don Blackwell, did an excellent job. Uh, boy, he's a good speaker. He's got a good persona about him. He can uh, communicate with people very well. And uh, I enjoyed his lessons very much. First lesson kind of rattled my cage just a little bit. <laughs> I thought, oh no, he's come down here to show where I'm wrong. And uh, I didn't get here that night. I was at home watching it on live stream and I was holding my breath. I'd make sure he didn't call out my name and said, look what that goober taught you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we went over uh, a lesson with regards to what happens when we die. And uh, I raised the possibility that when we die, we go to heaven. Uh, I've always believed and taught that we go to paradise until um, finally I realized that paradise and heaven were the same place and uh, started making a lot of things make more sense for me. So I thought I'd share it with you and had a pretty good response. Actually, I'm surprised that uh, so many people uh, found answers to their uh, previous questions that they had, and I'm glad that was the case. Today I said we would talk about uh, objections to that, uh, that teaching. It's uh, contrary to most of my brethren will teach, as we seen with Don, uh, you know, a month ago, I would have thought just exactly like he did. But uh, this is the norm, if you will, for what you'll hear in Churches of Christ. And uh, what I uh, uh, introduced is uh, a little off-center. But uh, I think I established the fact uh, last time we were together that uh, heaven and paradise, in fact, are the same place and that uh, Hades uh, doesn't imply a specific area, it just uh, implies the unseen, or where the body without a spirit is, okay? Now, I'm gonna make a difference between the body without a spirit and the spirit that's in a body, because there is a major difference between the two. Those who have gone to be with the Lord now, they don't have a body. They are spirits without bodies, after the resurrection, they're going to return to the Lord, but they're going to return in a glorified state because they're going to have, they're going to be in their own bodies. So what people, those who have gone before us have gone to a reward, uh, they do so in one sense, but then after the resurrection, they'll do it in a glorified state once the body has been raised from the dead. So uh, there is a, a difference between those two. I can't bring it up today. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know exactly what I'd say about it more than what I just said. But I do want to take a look at the objections. Um, these are the things that uh, I would have used if somebody had told me that when we die we go to heaven uh, and they said prove it, this is how I would have went about proving it. So let's look at uh, my old objections. Uh, out of body soul goes to paradise, heaven, and death. 
Somebody says, I object because paradise and heaven are two different places. That was my belief at one time, not so much today. Objection number one comes from John chapter 3 and verse 13. In John 3 and 13, the Lord said, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Okay, does this passage state that no one has yet entered heaven? I think it looks that way. No one has ascended to heaven. No one at all? What about Abraham or Moses? It seems to uh, destroy my theory right off the bat because the Lord Jesus himself said no one has ascended to heaven. Well, now, if you look at that verse as a standalone verse, that's the conclusion we're going to draw. But you all know, you've heard me say it enough times, context, context, context. Always remember the context. When passages are taken out of their context, they can be puzzling. They will be misunderstood. So we have to understand what it was the Lord was talking about when he made that statement. According to Terry in his book uh, on biblical hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, uh, the principles that we follow to study the Bible, these are the same principles that are used in logic, the science of logic. Uh, it's what we all live by, whether we know it or not. Most of the time, we, uh, we are very logical, reasonable people. He said, no single statement or obscure passage, no single verse like John 3.13 uh, can be allowed to set aside a doctrine, a teaching, which is clearly established by many other passages. Okay? Now, two weeks ago, I showed you many passages that teaches that heaven and paradise are the exact same place. And then when people pass they go to paradise, or if you will, they go to heaven. Now here's one verse that seems to contradict that. Now according to hermeneutics, you're not supposed to do that. If there are multiple passages that teach the paradise and heaven are the same place, and then you find a passage like this that says no one has ascended to heaven, and we know they've all gone to paradise or heaven, You've got a problem. You can't take one verse and use it to oppose what the Bible teaches as a general theme. And that's something we want to really pay attention to. The psalmist said in 119th Psalm, verse 160, this is David speaking here, the entirety of your word is truth, all of it. The King James book says the sum of your word is truth, the sum total, 2 plus 2 equals 4. The sum total of a mathematical problem is the conclusion we come to underneath all the numbers. But you gotta take all the numbers. You gotta take two, 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 two. As many twos as there are, you gotta take every one of them and then you come up with the sum of how much money you got in the bank. Well, the same thing is true when you're studying the Word of God. In order to understand a particular passage, You've got to understand what the Bible teaches about that. Baptism, for example. 
So many people misunderstand baptism. The denominational world completely misunderstands the purpose of baptism because they don't give consideration to what the Bible teaches about baptism as a general theme. If they did, they wouldn't draw the conclusions they draw by a couple of obscure verses. But they do. And that's why there's such a great division in the Christian religion. is because instead of approaching the Bible reasonably, intellectually, people just take a verse, and as far as they're concerned, that's the way it is. And you just don't want to do that. Christ is speaking in this text. He's speaking of his unique qualifications and ability to teach about the heavenly things. During his ministry and before and after, there were many people who claimed to go to heaven, receive a divine message, and come back. It wasn't uncommon among the Jews. And Jesus is refuting this. He said, in essence, I'm the only one that's qualified to teach about such matters because I came down from heaven to teach about such matters. And there's no one who claims to have gone up to heaven and come back that knows more about heavenly things than I do. Of course, nobody ever went up to heaven. They claimed it. But the point is, if they did, as was in the mind of many Jews, who would be accurate? The one who went up there briefly or the one who lived there from eternity? But the point is, this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about heaven as a general theme. It's not even on his mind in this context. He's not discussing who or who may not be in heaven. He's simply talking about his qualifications to speak about heavenly things. Robert Stein, in his difficult passages in the New Testament, describes this statement as an idiomatic device describing a human effort to acquire divine knowledge. It was in vain. It paled in comparison to the Son of God who revealed truth. According to Robertson, uh, only a true divine, or Dodds rather, only a truly divine being intrinsically possesses such a wealth of information. The only person who could possibly explain heaven to mortal man would be the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. These are the only ones qualified to teach about such matters because they're the only ones that know about such matters. So those who claim to be speaking for God don't listen to them because they have no more knowledge than you do. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Well, Jesus, we know, is the Word. Down in verse 14, the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Well, what's this saying about Jesus when you put it together? Jesus is God. When Jesus came down and spoke to man about heavenly things, this was God teaching men about heavenly things. Why would you listen to anyone else? Who's more qualified? And this is his whole point in his text. He's, he's, his home was in heaven. He was qualified to teach about such matters, and no one else is. The only things I can possibly teach about the Son of God are those things that he's revealed to me, to all of us, in the Bible. 
It's the only thing I can tell you about. I've never been there. I don't know anything else, and I don't know anything on my own. If the Lord hadn't said it, I wouldn't know what to say. And neither does anyone else. But he's qualified because he came from heaven. God had paraphrased the matter uh, in this manner. No one is entered into communion with God and possesses thereby an intuitive knowledge of divine things in order to reveal them to others, except he to whom heaven was opened and who dwells there even at this very moment. Only Christ was capable of teaching the truth on these matters. And that's what Jesus was doing. The last phrase, uh, who is in heaven, I think Brother Guy in Woods, the late Brother Guy in Woods, hit the nail on the head. Uh, with regards to who is in heaven, he says, likely this phrase was added when John penned the book years after Christ's ascension. And he did, probably on the Isle of Patmos, maybe afterwards, when he was back in Ephesus. John wrote this uh, Gospel of John, as we call it, uh, very late in life, about 92, 93 AD. So it could be because the Lord had been in heaven now for some 60 years, it could be John just simply added, who is in heaven, because he was in heaven, as everyone knew. Okay. Objection number two. This is the best one of all. This is the one that always I couldn't understand. I couldn't explain other than paradise and heaven being two entities. John chapter 20 and verse 17. Jesus said to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now the phrase that gives us uh, difficulty here is, I have not yet ascended to my Father. Does this mean that Jesus didn't go to the Father when he died? Well, I always thought that was what he was saying. But I think I was wrong. I don't think that's what he was saying at all. Let me explain. At death, our Lord went to paradise. We know that from Luke 23, 43. He had not yet ascended to his Father, which seems that his father, we know, was in heaven. The conclusion, paradise and heaven are two different places. This is the way a person would reason. Uh, this is the way I reasoned. And it seems very prudent to me to reason this way. Jesus went to paradise, therefore. He did not go to heaven. And that's what is meant by this statement. I have not yet ascended to my father. If that's true, then my theory is wrong, that heaven and paradise are the same place. Because if you went to paradise, and if paradise is heaven, and the Father is in heaven, then Jesus would have ascended to the Father. But he clearly states that he did not. So how do we reason through this problem? Look at the context, always the context. First, at the point of his death, Christ cried with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. What does that mean? Did he, at that time, commend his spirit to the Father? Or did their reunion take place 40 days later? Going to have to be one or the other. 
When he was on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Did he commend his spirit to the Father that day? Or was it 40 days later? How do we reason through this thing? The present tense, its middle voice form of the verb, it suggests he was handing over, he was giving, he was entrusting his spirit to the Father for his care at this time. Now that's according to the language. Literally, that's what Jesus was saying. I am handing over my spirit to you, Father. And then we ask again, did he? Or was it 40 years later? This is the definition given to us by Speak in his theological lexicon of the New Testament. And Danker as well in his Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament. Both of them explain this phrase in that manner. And they're giants in word studies. Uh, they, they are giants. At the moment, God, it says, when he is about to lose self-consciousness, when the possession of his spirit escapes from him, he confides it as a deposit to his father. That's according to both Goddard in his commentary on Luke, as well as Grunman on his theological dictionary of the New Testament words. <clears throat> Bengal says the father received the spirit of Jesus. That's what that statement means. If the father received the spirit of Jesus, then he had ascended to the father. So why did he say he had not ascended to the Father? There was something he had on his mind. There was something he was saying that we're just not getting. And we have to understand what that is. When Jesus said, according to Tenney, when Jesus said, I have not yet ascended, of course that's in the perfect tense, I have not yet ascended to the Father, the text suggests a permanent state, not a mere act. What does he mean by that? When Jesus said, I have not yet ascended to the Father, he means, I have not yet ascended to the Father permanently. Which leaves the option that he had ascended to the Father temporarily. He hadn't gone back for good, so to speak. Now, if he ascended to the Father temporarily and he came back on the third day, there must have been a reason why he came back. And there was. To be raised from the dead. His body was resurrected. He re-entered his body. Now he's in his glorified state. When Jesus went to the Father, he went as a spirit person not in his glorified state. When he came back and he was raised from the dead on day three, he would later return to the Father in his glorified state as victor over death, over sin. That's what he was talking about. His time was short. His time was brief. He didn't have time to spend with Mary. She wanted him to, 
But he didn't have time for that. He had other things he had to do. He only had 40 days, and he had much to accomplish within those 40 days. So touch me not, he said. Let me go. The, the best words, word experts that I know of uh, all agree with what we're just saying. Additionally, in the NIV version, which I don't really like, but in this particular verse, they're, they're closer to what the Lord said than the, the versions that I do like. But the NIV said, Jesus said, do not hold on to me. What I, what I get in my mind's eye is that when Mary saw Jesus, she grabbed him, probably wanting to embrace him, I would think. And maybe she did embrace him. I don't know. But she grabbed hold of him. She wanted to touch him. She wanted to see him. She wanted to hear him to make sure that that was really him. Do not hold on to me. It's obvious that Mary was holding on to the Lord's body, I think, and that the subject under consideration was his body. He was referencing his body when he said, do not touch me. I have not the spirit and the body. I have not yet ascended to the Father. That was something he had to do. Though there were other things he had to do first. But he would one day return back in his glorified state. It hadn't happened. Even though he had gone to the Father when he died, even though he had been resurrected, he hadn't yet returned to heaven as victor over the devil. That was something that would be done once he was resurrected and in his glorified state. When he hanged on the cross, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. The body wasn't going to be there. It was just the spirit. And he went to the Father just like everybody does as a spirit without a body. He went to the Father. He came back on day three. He was glorified when he was raised from the dead. Those who have gone before us who are with the Father, they too shall one day be glorified when they come back and they receive their new bodies and they present themselves before the Lord in their glorified states. We have to try to understand the big picture that's being painted for us. Jesus was cautioning Mary, in essence, his stay in his resurrected state, his stay was just temporary. He had to go back to the Father. But before he did, there were some things he had to do. So do not hold on to me. Permanent association would come later. Later you can hold on to me. Later you will be with me forever and ever and ever. But not today. Today I have work to do. Objection number three. Acts chapter 2 verse 34. Peter preaching, he said that David did not ascend into the heavens. Well, according to what I've said, David would have ascended into heaven. Peter said he did not ascend into heaven. How do we understand this? Either what we think Peter said is right, or I'm wrong. 
but it can't be both ways, what we think Peter said. Well, let's think about what Peter said. Let's look in the context. Brother Wayne Jackson summarized it very well. The apostles' argument was that the prophetic psalm foretells the Messiah's resurrection and enthronement and that Israel's great king could not have spoken concerning himself because David's body was still in his undisturbed tomb as they all conceded, Acts 2.29. David, in his glorified state, did not go to heaven. How do you know, they might ask, because his body's right over there in that sepulcher, and you all know it very well. So the glorified David doesn't exist yet. He hasn't gone to heaven, but the Son of God has. Who was David talking about himself or the Messiah who would come later? The conclusion was obvious. David was talking about Jesus. He wasn't talking about himself, but the Jews thought he was talking about himself. But as Peter pointed out, that wasn't the case at all. Couldn't have been the case. Therefore, verse 34 has to do with David's body, not his soul. David's body had not been raised from the dead, whereas the Christ's tomb was empty. Where was the body? And they had no explanation. In conclusion, at his death, Jesus' spirit went to paradise and the Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Three days later, he returned and he was resurrected from the dead. Now, instead of an out-of-the-body spirit, now he is in his body on Sunday. In his resurrected state, he told Mary he hadn't ascended to the Father, which he hadn't, not in his resurrected state. That was yet to come. That was going to happen. But first, there were some things he had to do. He had to prove himself alive with many infallible proofs. And once he accomplished that text, he, he would go back to heaven and the angels would be lined up awaiting his return and he would enter into heaven and up to the throne of God as the king of the kings and the lord of lords. He was going to be a great victor just like the Roman emperors were. And he would come into heaven in that manner. But he hadn't done that yet because his body was still in the tomb. In his resurrected, now qualified, glorified state, he had not returned to the Father, not his victor. That was yet to come. At the resurrection, Revelation 20:14 says, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Hades is the place of disembodied spirits. After the resurrection, there'll be no disembodied spirits. There'll be no more need for Hades. And Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. It has a purpose. That's the place of disembodied spirits who reside in heaven. Harris commented, the New Testament has very few verses speaking of the intermediate state. But the teaching is definite. 
that for the child of God, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's got to be one way or the other. When we leave our bodies, we're either with the Lord or we are not with the Lord. Paul said we are with the Lord. And where do we find the Lord? Sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. A new concept is very hard to digest. Especially when somebody springs it on you out of nowhere. Brother Don, he preached what I talked about differently last week. What does that mean? That he taught false teaching? That he ought to be disfellowshipped? That I taught false teaching? That I ought to be disfellowshipped? Teachings like what I'm talking about today, if I'm wrong, it's what's considered a non-fatal error. As long as I'm honest in my heart in what I'm teaching, even if I'm wrong, the Lord will still embrace me. This is not a non-fatal, this is a non-fatal error. A fatal error is an error when you defy God. Now you might misunderstand God, but that doesn't mean you defied him. You might misunderstand a good many things. We get into the, the head covering of women, for example. All kinds of opinions about it. Does that mean that everybody's going to lose their soul? Well, not at all. What's that got to do with anything? It's got nothing to do with anything. Not today it doesn't. There's a principle that's involved. We ought to understand the principle. But when you start running around a ruler, going to start measuring the length of people's hair. And that's about the way it was when I first became a Christian. You've gone way overboard at that point. It's not a judgment call. Unless, unless you try to look like the world. If that's the motive, well, then it is a judgment call. But if, if it's out of misunderstanding, that's a whole different matter. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't know any other way to explain it. I had to swallow my pride and tell you this, and I've done that. Oh, boy. Do we want to talk about heaven and earth? Maybe I can swing it in just a couple minutes. Let's try it. Question came to me the other day as well. What is the meaning of the new heavens and the new earth? Uh, we read about it in 2 Peter 3.13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What is the new heavens and new earth? Well, we know that the present earth is to pass away. We've been taught that all our lives because that's what the Bible teaches. Our eternal abiding place is going to be heaven. Peter said in 1 Peter 1 and 4, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away is awaiting us, reserved for us in heaven. Okay, we know the earth is going to perish this place where we live now, we know that the Lord has a place somewhere that's ready for us. It's where he lives, where he dwells, 
we're going to be there. Why am I doing this? Because some people say that new heaven and the new earth is going to be the earth we live in right now. That's not true. The Bible's crystal clear on the matter. It's going to be destroyed. It's not going to exist. Matter will not exist any longer. There won't be space. There won't be outer space. There won't be stars. There won't be a moon. There won't be a sun. There won't be anything. Everything God created is gone when he determines it to be gone. And then we step in to the spirit realm where God is. Our present environment is called heaven and earth. Now, why would it be called heaven and earth? It's because we live in heaven and earth. We eat the food that comes out of the ground. We live because of the earth. We, we fill our lungs all the time with the oxygen that we get out of the first heaven, the atmosphere where we live. That's the first heaven. Deep space is the second heaven. Where God dwells is the third heaven, according to what the Jews taught. My point is, we don't live by the earth. We live by heaven and earth because it takes both. If there wasn't oxygen, we'd all perish. If there wasn't food coming out of the ground, we would all perish. We live by heaven and earth. This is our environment. This is what keeps us alive, what gives us a place to live, heaven and earth. Well, if that's true, and it is, then it's only reasonable that the Lord's going to prepare for us a new heaven and a new earth. Because right now, that's all we know. That's what it takes to keep us alive. John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He has the opportunity to look into the future. Fortunate man that he was. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a place where no one has ever lived. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They were gone. They didn't exist any longer. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and 12, the heavens that we see above us now that we live in, the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire. The elements would melt with a fervent heat. They're going to be destroyed. And because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the Lord said to his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You're going to need another dwelling place because this place isn't going to be here anymore. So I'm going to prepare a place for you, my disciples. The reason being the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. Since this is the case, and it is, it was essential that a new heaven and a new earth would appear. A new place for God's children to live. When you read that phrase, a new heaven and earth, don't be shaken by it. It's very simple. Why is it thought strange that our future state is also referred to as new heavens and new earth if our present state is heaven and earth? Why would a new heaven and a new earth be so shocking? If we are promised heaven, and we are, and we are promised new heavens and a new earth, and we are, then heaven and new heavens and the earth are the same. What do the writers mean when they speak of the new heaven and the new earth? Quite simply, a place for us to live just as we've been living so far. This place will be destroyed, have no fear. 
the Lord Jesus went to prepare a place for us to dwell after the resurrection. That's all it is. Don't be shaken by what some people teach. Oh boy, I'm so tired. I don't ever know what's on people's minds. I wish I did. There's some, no doubt, that are not Christian people. Uh, that's not wise. It's not wise not to be a Christian. Uh, the only thing that is in the future is 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 certain death, a, a horrible death, an eternal death, a death that never stops, never consumed. You never cease to exist. You will always exist, forever and forever. Hell is going to last just as long as heaven. And those in hell are going to last just as long as those who are in heaven. We're immortal beings. We'll never be destroyed. We'll always exist. A failure to pay attention to the Lord while we live in this world is not wise. Because one day, one day, we will stand before him. He will examine us according to the things that we've done and the things we have not done, and he will make a decision as to our fitness to live with him in heaven or not. If we live to the best of our ability, that's all the Lord requires. I used to think he required perfection. That's not true. He wants us to do the best we can do. And as long as we do the best we can do, the Lord's happy with us. I could tell you so many stories about people who have worried about that. But it's not anything that we have to concern ourselves with. If we can, from the heart, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace him as our Lord and Savior, we can have our sins taken away, have the hope of life eternal. Same thing is true for us as Christians. We studied in our Bible class this morning. Let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. Just because we are saved doesn't mean we will die in a saved state. That can change when we stop listening to the Lord. 